Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. As the countdown to Christmas is well underway, as I mentioned earlier, in the world around us, even as we're only just beginning to prepare for the big day as the church, we enter into a time in which we are called to believe. Through beloved songs and celebrated stories, this repeated appeal of the Christmas season to believe is attached to various desirable propositions. We are to believe that we're going to finally come home for the holidays. We're going to believe of reaching into personalized stockings or looking under decorated trees and finding what we always wanted, everything that made our list. We are called to believe all our days being merry and bright, of there being peace on earth, goodwill to all people, and joy to the world. However, it's the packaging, really, the Christmas wrapping that covers all these universally shared hopes and dreams that really stretches our credulity. The packaging of the Word of God made flesh. Over the next few weeks, we will be asked once again to embrace and herald angels appearing, a virgin conceiving, a star guiding, and God being birthed as a baby, not as a myth, not as a fable, fantasy, or fake news, but as gospel truth. But what do we do when the Christmas story becomes too hard to believe? What happens when the very foundation upon which Christmas is built seems too good to be true? As the world around us seems more and more on the brink of worldwide war, as what divides us appears to be increasingly growing rather than decreasing, as what is true continues to be contested and left up to whatever is right in each person's own eyes, we are all becoming skeptics to some degree. How do we keep believing in Christmas when what we are asked to believe is so unbelievable? That's the question we're going to wrestle with today through the story of a priest named Zechariah. A man whom, as we'll soon discover, had become so well-practiced in not expecting much from God that he had a hard time believing it when God actually showed up and announced some great expectations, not only for him and his wife, but for all Israel, and by extension, the world. My friends, as we begin our journey toward the miracle of Christmas, let us learn to believe again, or maybe to believe for the very first time. I invite you to follow along in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5. The words again are on the screen. In the time of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abja. His wife Elizabeth also was descended, a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers gathered and were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. 
Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring many back to the, of the people of Israel back to the Lord their God. And he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. Skipping ahead. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, praising God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Zechariah is a man living at a time when faith in God was at an all-time low. His generation, along with the generation that preceded him, along with the generation to follow, may have been raised like those before them on the gospel of Moses in the Exodus. But before the continuing occupation and oppression of Israel, first by the per Persians, then by the Greeks, and now by the Romans, these stories of God's deliverance of the people from slavery in Egypt sometimes seemed more like myth than reality. Long gone are the glory days of King Israel and Israel's greatness among the nations. Now, as Luke tells us, it is the time of Herod, the king of Judea. And the throne upon which Herod sits is not one of divine calling or anointing. No, decades earlier, Herod had been made king by the Roman Senate, both as a matter of political convenience and as a reward for services to be rendered, namely for keeping Judea's service and tribute to Rome uninterrupted. More of a puppet than an actual monarch, the irony of it all was Herod, as the king of the Jews, wasn't even Jewish by birth. He was an Edomite, a person of Arab origin lorded over the people of Israel. And as for the repeated promise of the prophets from back in the day of a coming Savior, a divinely sent Messiah, it's now some 550 years old. That's more than five centuries. 
Five centuries without so much as a small miracle or an encouraging sign from heaven above. With nothing much changed in all that time and with a growing sense that things were going to get worse before they got better, the majority of Israelites have moved on from walking by faith and instead are trying to make their own luck, attempting either to provoke God into acting or just trying to work around the Lord altogether. Various factions have arisen. One faction, for example, pushes for a return to tradition, the good old days, mandated by the force of law, the law, by parsing the Ten Commandments, God's rules for life, into more detailed, more stringent degrees of observance, all in the name of purity and morality. Another faction is, shall we say, a bit more progressive, convinced that good governance can solve all of Israel's problems. With them, it's all about the art of the compromise. You know, give a little to get a little. Playing politics with Rome in order to advance the interests of Israel. And there are, of course, other factions besides these two. There are those who protest by taking up arms and going on the offensive. For them, violence may not be the answer, but it sure as hell stirs the pot and makes things happen. For them, there are no innocent bystanders, only those who pick a side in their inaction or action. And then there are those who just go native, you know. They move out of the big bad city and get off the grid. They separate and isolate themselves by living out in the wilderness, stockpiling goods and resources, watching and waiting any day now for the end of the world. As we survey the ancient past that was the time of Zechariah, we surely must recognize how these varying postures of taking matters into our own hands versus walking by faith remain ever-present in our day and age. Now, according to Luke, old Zechariah didn't belong to any of these factions. Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, proved themselves to be among the rare few who didn't get caught up in all the fuss. No, the two of them went about each day observing the way of the Lord, seeking to do what is right, to be blameless in their conduct toward others. And yet Zechariah and Elizabeth were not without their struggles and longings in their faith. For all their time together as husband and wife, they have waited, they have hoped, they have prayed for a family, for a child of their own. Yet in, their many years, in all their many years of marriage, they together could not conceive. And now, much older as a couple, with their best days arguably far behind them, They've seemingly learned to move on and live without the child they both so desperately wanted. It's against this backdrop that Luke introduces us to Zechariah as he's on his way back to work. His work as a priest of Israel. And quick introduction or refresher. The overall responsibility of the priesthood, as outlined in great detail, by the way, at the end of the book of Exodus all the way through the book of Leviticus, the overall responsibility of the priesthood was to mediate the relationship between the community of Israel and the presence of God which was located in the temple. Through facilitating the daily praise, worship, and sacrifices of the people offered unto the Lord, all aimed at reconciliation and restoration, not only with God but with each other, the priesthood ensured the overall health of the individual and the community, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, even physically. Now, to carry out the work of the priesthood way back when, King David 
with the inauguration of the temple in Jerusalem, divided all of the priestly families into 24 groups in order to balance the workload involved related to the temple and the priesthood. Each of these groups took turns serving at the altar in the temple, and in fact, at one time, there were as many as 18,000 priests ordained to service. One of these groups, as we heard, was headed by the priest Abijah, the lineage to which Zechariah belongs. And today is no ordinary day for Zechariah. It's a momentous day on the job, in fact, for Zechariah, because the clan of Abijah has been chosen to serve in the temple. But even more than this, Zechariah has been chosen by lot from within this clan to offer the evening sacrifice of incense. To perform this duty, Zechariah must enter the very sanctuary of the temple and stand before the veil concealing the Holy of Holies, the most inner chamber that is reported to bear the presence of God. This is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve and occupy the most sacred of spaces, the point of contact between heaven and earth. But quickly... It proves to be a divine appointment in more ways than one. For it is here, on the job, at the climactic moment of fulfilling his work for the day, as Zechariah, if you can picture it, is immersed in the white smoke and the sweet fragrance of the incense, that he is visited by a messenger of the Lord, an angel named Gabriel. And Gabriel delivers to Zechariah some unexpected news. The good news that Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth will conceive and bear a child. But then again, not just any child. A child who would shift the focus of worship and direction of his own people and all the world from a temple made by human hands to a deity tabernacled among us, the very word of God made flesh. Zechariah and Elizabeth will give birth to a son they will name John, being set apart from the Lord and filled with God's Spirit even before his birth. This son of Zechariah and Elizabeth will bring joy and greatness not only to them, but to many others. For their son John, in the practice and the tradition of the famed prophet Elijah, will lay the groundwork and prepare the way for the long-promised Messiah, the coming Savior of Israel and all the world. And in response, Zechariah, this aging but faithful priest, this man who has been waiting all his life for something to happen, is completely unprepared for the news he is receiving. That everything for which he has hoped, everything, a son, the salvation of his people, is at last about to take place. Zechariah, whose name means God has again remembered, ironically forgets. This is exactly what God has done before through persons like Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Rachel, Hannah and Elkanah, creating possibility from perceived impossibility, bringing forth life and salvation from what appeared to be a dead end. Zechariah, the priest whose calling and job description was to lead the people in following God, now finds himself questioning his convictions, hesitating rather than boldly stepping forward with confidence. Day after day, Zechariah kept the faith. But when the moment of truth arrived, Zechariah found it all too hard to believe. 
too good to be true. Now, i got to be honest. I am so thankful for the flawed, less-than-perfect witness of Zechariah here. It enables me to breathe easier and not be so hard on myself amid my nagging questions and lingering doubts. I can relate to Zechariah, and I'm willing to bet you can too. We pray the prayers. We sing the songs. We hear the sermons, hopefully. Week in, week out, we come to the table. We know the right words to say. We can go through the motions of following the Lord. But when our moment of truth comes, when, like Zechariah, our moment of truth comes, the first thought that often comes into our minds, the first word from our lips, is not one of stepping forward and saying, let's go. Like Zechariah, it's often a posture of caution, of stepping back and asking, how can I be sure of this? Followed by a list of our reservations. It's, I'm sorry, that's not possible. No, I'm too old. No, 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 no it's too late. Sorry, that time has passed. No, 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 no. It's, this is just too much, too much. Believing is hard. When skepticism has become common sense. When life never seems to go the way we planned, the way we were promised. As we still bear the unhealed wounds of unmet expectations of previous dreams dashed of former prospects that were never realized, it can be easier, safer, to get used to disappointment instead of believing. I mean, as the days turn to weeks and weeks turn to months and months turn into years and nothing changes for the better, we can learn to settle with what we have rather than to keep hoping for the best. And when the announcement of a turning point comes, <laughs> it can be challenging to look beyond questioning the feasibility of something better than the devil and the details we know. And instead, just holding on to the hesitations to which we've grown accustomed. I am thankful for the witness of Zechariah at this moment because I can relate more than I care to admit to the raw, unfiltered honesty of his reaction to divine initiative and movement in his life. But I'll tell you what, I'm even more grateful for the God who makes room for the God who does not forsake or abandon, for the God who embraces hesitant, questioning doubters like Zechariah and me. I mean, Zechariah is literally left dumbstruck by his doubts, literally. His initial reticence at the angel Gabriel's announcement becomes, by divine decree, a hushed, prolonged silence as Zechariah's voice is muted and he becomes unable to speak. And there's a purposeful irony in this if you step back and look at it. Think about it. The soon-to-be father of a great prophet, of one who is described as a voice crying in the wilderness, heralding humanity's salvation as the father of that son is now put on pregnant pause, unable to say anything to anyone for the next nine months while his wife is expecting. Now, Zechariah literally being left speechless by God could wrongly be re 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 viewed as a rebuke. And it's often viewed as a rebuke. 
But I think it's better perceived as a blessing rather than a curse. I mean, again, I guess I've been gone for a while, so i got a lot, lot to share with you. But I don't know about you, but it's my mouth that regularly gets me into trouble. I never find myself at a loss for something to say. But I am frequently guilty of remembering of learning how to listen. Having an opinion, offering advice, debating a point, defending my perspective, asserting why I'm right and you're wrong. These are postures I adapt naturally. At times impulsively, I'm sorry to confess. But being quiet, paying attention, observing, reading the room, Noticing what is being said, what is unfolding, what is happening outside of my preconceived ideas, beyond my limited perspective, not so easy. Difficult to come by for me. Easier to shoot my mouth off and try and control the conversation rather than to be present and shaped by the moment. Even, I'll admit, when it comes to my relationship with God. You see, I have this annoying habit of handing God to-do lists all the time. Request after request with a litany of explanations of why and how the Lord should fulfill whatever I desire. And I don't know if you've, you've noticed this, but because God doesn't speak as frequently or as fast as I prefer, I often find myself putting words into God's mouth, the words I want to hear, rather than waiting being patient, and allowing the Lord to speak to me, to work in his timing. My words can sometimes be more reflective of my own anxieties and concerns than of what God is actually proposing to do in my life in this world. And even when I pray, especially if my prayers are nothing more than my incessant talking, my prayerful words, as well-intentioned as they may be, can become distractions from fully placing myself in God's hands by quietly listening. Sometimes our words, like Zechariah's, manifest our limits rather than making room for the fullness of God's dynamic and healing power. All this is to say... I view Zechariah's heavenly imposed silence as a gift of grace rather than as a divine punishment. You see, because Zechariah now, instead of being left to talk his way out of all the promise, all the possibility, all the joy that God is about to birth into his life, into his family, into his nation, into this world, instead of being able to talk his way out of it, no, Zechariah is now better enabled to adopt the one posture that the Lord repeatedly invites all of us to embrace. Do you remember it? To be still before him and know that he is God. With nothing else to do, let alone say, as everything begins to unfold, Zechariah can only watch and wait within the sacred space of stillness and silence removed from instinctively contributing to all the surrounding busyness and noise, Zechariah gains a heightened ability to be more alert, to be more present, to be more receptive to the wonder, hope, and assurance of the God who never fails, but always fulfills our greatest needs, rarely in the way we expect, 
but always in a manner on which we can count and trust. Zechariah, God filled Zechariah's silence with something better than the sound of his own speech. God filled Zechariah's silence with his presence. And all along this quieted way, Zechariah learned something about the nature of belief when it comes to God. Zechariah learns that believing isn't primarily about us. Believing isn't primarily about us. Think about it. Think about all the holiday movies this time of year. Doesn't matter what your favorite is. All the holiday movies that we will watch will present believing as something we need to do in order for Christmas miracles to happen. We need to believe for Santa's sleigh to be able to take flight, elf. We need to believe in order to hear the bells of Santa's reindeer, the Polar Express. We need to believe for Santa to be able to bring presents under the tree. Like those stories, we often treat belief as something we have to muster up within ourselves, raising, rising above all our questions and our doubts. But notice something important here. The angel Gabriel doesn't tell Zechariah, well, since you find it hard to believe everything I've outlined, this grand miracle can't or won't happen. No, a hush Zechariah gets to sit back and learn God doesn't need us to believe in him in order to make unbelievable things happen. When belief is about us, convincing ourselves, making up our minds, the strength of our wills, making a decision for Christ, what we believe will be limited by what we can expect, what we can accept, by what we deem manageable, by what, not surprisingly, fits the boundaries of what we can control, rather than what is proclaimed to be possible. Biblically, the call to believe is never, never ever the embrace of the obvious, the logical, or the reasonable. Biblically, the call to believe stretches us beyond what is familiar, beyond what is comfortable, beyond what is known, beyond what is logical, beyond what is even understandable. Because biblically, the call to believe is not about exercising the strength of our will. The call to believe biblically is about the complete submission of our will. Before a God who is present, before a God who works and moves, before a God who changes things regardless of what we perceive, regardless of what we comprehend, regardless of what we can explain. Jesus, much later on when he grows up, will always, always pair the call to believe with the following admonition. Jesus will call us to believe and then immediately say, come and see, follow me. My friends, when we make belief about us, what we can accept and reconcile, we will always end up like Peter, walking on water one moment and then nearly drowning the next as we take our eyes off Christ. But once we realize belief is not about us, we end up echoing the words of that desperate father to Jesus whose son was ill, remember? Whom the belief of the disciples could not save. That father who said, I believe, help my unbelief. Beloved, the good news, the gospel of Christmas in every day 
is that belief is not something we give to God. Belief is a gift that God gives to us. Belief is, uh, in God is a gift from God. And like all gifts, the only viable response, the only means for experiencing that gift is to receive it, to embrace it, not to rationalize whether it's appropriate or realistic, not to hesitate or resist because we're not sure we've merited it, we deserve it, or because we lack the ability to repay it. Because again, it's not that we believe in God, but rather that God believes in us. God doesn't come down through the birth of a child because we believe the word can become flesh, because we make ourselves worthy. God comes down in Jesus Christ. God is with us because God believes we are worth saving. Because God purposes to heal and restore what we have convinced ourselves is beyond redemption. You'll notice the next time Zechariah speaks, Belief in what God is doing is no longer something he's trying to talk himself into, having all his questions answered. No, some nine months and eight days later, Zechariah's very first words, backing up his wife Elizabeth, are unfathomable to the rest of his family. But they reflect Zechariah's submission to God's belief in him. Zechariah's manner of speaking has changed as he asserts not his chosen name for his newborn child, not the name of anyone else among his relatives, but instead defers to the Lord's chosen name for his son, John. Zechariah doesn't stop there. We stopped reading, but Zechariah doesn't stop there. Long gone are Zechariah's former words, words of protest before God's invitation to believe. They now are replaced by this majestic song of praise, an ancient melody, a heavenly chorus. Zechariah's spirit-inspired words are a stirring proclamation of God's long-standing belief in Israel, even when Israel struggled to understand and failed to trust God. And with this real lyrical retelling of Israel's gospel, Zechariah goes on to sing, without reservation or hesitation, of the coming dawn of the good news of God's deliverance and redemption of all creation. From the mouth of the one who found it hard to believe in the birth of his own son, John, spills out Zechariah's yielding before the promise of the birth of the one who would bring salvation, who would forgive sins, who would give light to those in darkness and guide our feet in peace. The one who will be Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. <laughs> Once again, the holidays are here. Tis the season for all kinds of frantic activity and planning, making lists and checking them twice, upholding traditions, creating new memories, ensuring we do everything right so we can have a perfect Christmas with family and friends. And even if that's not our seasonal disposition, even if that's not you, there still can be no avoiding the impact of the holiday rush. Can you feel it? As the volume gets turned up on all the noise, all the busyness, all the crowds, all the hurry around us. Whether we're trying to believe in Christmas by the strength of our own will and effort or whether we're confounded by disbelief in Christmas based on what the holiday season has become. Perhaps we all need a little bit of Zachariah's divinely prescribed medicine. What I'm saying is where is God putting his hand over your mouth, hushing you to talk less, so that he can enable you to listen and observe more. 
more of what you don't, of what you can't normally hear and see. Where is the Lord silencing the ongoing monologue in our heads and our hearts where we are talking ourselves again and again into mindsets and postures of being that limit our reception to the possibilities that God even now is breaking onto our horizon? Beloved, not just at Christmas time, but all throughout the year, this beautiful broken world often becomes very busy. And our minds and hearts become cluttered by all the chaos, all the concerns, all the what-ifs. With all the questions of living, we sometimes forget to just be. But it's only as we enter, rather than resist the stillness and the quiet that comes upon us in our fear and confusion, it's only then that we come to know that our Creator is God. Not some distant, aloof deity who arbitrarily makes his presence known now and then, but the God who never stops laboring to heal and reshape all creation towards full, abundant, and everlasting life. Beloved, Christmas isn't hard to believe. If belief is a gift, the submission of our will not to some belief in God we try to manifest, but the yielding of our will before the miracle of the God who believes in us, who believes in us even amid all our questions, even amid all our hesitations, even amid all our doubts, even amid all our reservations. The God who believes in us to the point of emptying himself and becoming flesh of our flesh and bones of our bones. Make no mistake, God is still at work. The Lord is still on the move. God's power exceeds our own ability to name, capture, or control the events in our lives, the events in this world as yet unknown to us. All of our deepest and shared longings, all of the promises, hopes, and dreams, they rest upon the good news of a God who comes down, of a God who breaks through, of a God who bridges the gap between the impossible and the possible, the inconceivable and the conceivable, the lost and the found, the limited and the limitless, the finite and the eternal, the unforgivable and the redeemable. Because nothing God promises and plans for us is ever too good to be true. Whatever God plans and promises us is always, always better than anything we could have imagined or hoped for. This is the promise of Christmas. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.